You're listening to Pair of Programmers. I'm Christopher Wolf, And I'm John Fisher. In the show, we explore different topics that software developers encounter in their careers. The format of the show is that one of us researches a topic and the other reacts with insights from their experience. Tweet us at Podcast to send us topics you'd like to hear discussed. Today's episode is about discrimination in software. I've done the research this week, and John will react with his insights. Sounds good. Let's go. So we're going to talk about um, different types of software, and that unless you're careful not to introduce a bias, um, can have a bias, and that bias is discriminatory in various different ways. We'll start off with facial recognition, and then we'll dive into predictive analysis, decision-making, that sort of stuff. And then we'll end with services like Google Translate, uh, so translating from one language to another. Um, so we're going to start off with facial recognition. Um, so where is facial recognition used? Well, it's used in some fun scenarios, like for features on your camera, like my camera. I have a Samsung S9 Plus, and the camera app lets you put on different masks and various chat programs or social media apps do something similar. Often your photo apps nowadays will be able to recognize a person and organize your pictures Uh, in such a way that, you know, if you're going back and you're looking back in time and you want to see pictures of your mom and dad, your photo app might have already organized those photos for you in that way. Um, Another place facial recognition is used is as a biometric for signing into a device. Uh, So Android, back in, I think, 2004, when they released their ice cream sandwich version of their operating system, that was a touted feature, was that you could unlock your phone with your face. Uh, And they ran into some problems with that, but... That's certainly a technique that's been maturing over time. So those are some fun examples of where facial recognition is used, but some not so fun examples. Um, Australia and New Zealand are known to use facial recognition systems at their borders to automate processing. Um, Different cities, including London and Tampa Bay, have trialed using facial recognition at public events with the goal of trying to pick up people with warrants for their arrest Uh, So Tampa Bay used it at the Super Bowl in 2002. They deployed it, and the system did detect something like 19 wanted people, but they actually didn't arrest anyone because basically they were, like, overwhelmed. Like, the system found the people were there, (laughs) but then actually trying to find them once you knew they were there was really hard, and also just, like, meandering through the crowds. Did any of those result in any sort of any lawsuits or anything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ACLU is... Definitely not a fan of deploying facial recognition systems in that way, or in general, like even for basic surveillance on CCTV, there are definitely a lot of privacy concerns about that. Um, Another example where that type of system was deployed was at a Taylor Swift concert in 2018, trying to find people that were known to be stalkers and trying to keep them out of the concert. And then finally, uh, the most serious example is facial recognition has been used to identify individuals in a criminal investigation and as the worst case, as the only evidence against them. And I think the example here was like, you know, there was a robbery at a store, you know, overnight, but there was a security camera footage that the faces in that footage would be matched against, you know, a mugshot database, Mm. and that potentially that would be the only evidence used against that person. Does that hold up in a court of law? I don't think it would, because it's so inaccurate. (laughs) 
Now, some, of course, fear that the deployment of these facial recognition systems will lead to a total surveillance society with the government and other authorities having the ability to know where you are around the clock. Mm. But also it's concerning in its commercial usage. You know, big, large tech companies like Google or Apple, you know, should a company be able to know where you are at a public event? everywhere you go. Right. Here's one more example. Um, Maryland's deployed the system in Baltimore to arrest unruly protesters after the death of Freddie Gray in police custody. And so they were trying to pick out protesters out of the crowds using facial recognition systems. Wait, so how did that work? I think they were just using it to like identify the protesters, you know, without... Oh, okay. And then put out the warrants for their arrest. Yeah, so they were comparing the faces that they were seeing to their database of driver's license photos. And in that way, they could identify who those people were to arrest them later. Yeah, it's pretty pretty fucked up, right? (laughs) That's well, so I guess I'm just wondering like... When you had your driver's license taken, like you didn't really sign any sort of consent form, I'm guessing, or I don't know, maybe I did and I just didn't pay attention to it. Um, but like, I think that most people would say, while taking this picture, I, I do not necessarily agree that the state or that the government can use my photo in any way that they want. Like, you right. can't manipulate it and do that sort of stuff so like this seems somewhere along that line of like i i wouldn't want um my photo be used this way yeah oh yeah absolutely me either but yeah i'm not sure if the forms we would have signed would say something one way or the other but it feels like some sort of right is being violated there yeah so obviously these systems are deployed in a lot of different ways and You know, I don't think that they're going to go anywhere, but we can talk about the accuracy of these systems. Um, So a study by the FBI in 2012 evaluated the matching accuracy of six different facial recognition algorithms. And it found that the algorithms exhibited lower recognition accuracies on the following groups, females, blacks, and young adults. Um, So (laughs) that was consistent across the board for every single algorithm. Um, that those groups were recognized at lower accuracy. I remember listening to a podcast two years ago or something where there was a group of teenagers, uh, one of which was black, with like a bunch of his white friends, and they were in a mall. And just like the group did like very minor theft. Like I think they like stole a candy bar from a grocery store Mm -hmm. or something. And they were able to identify all the white kids, but like the camera (laughs) just never saw never saw the black kid yeah Uh, just like he wasn't brought in but all of his friends were (laughs) right yeah um well we were talking about chat programs before like another example i came across i guess uh someone at this office place they had gotten this new chat software and everybody was really excited there were a ton of new features and it was like tracking people's faces and i guess doing fun weird things but when the black colleague walked in it didn't recognize her face and it couldn't do any fun features for her, you know? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, right. it's definitely um, a pervasive lack of recognition in these algorithms. Yeah, and just to really drive home the point, I know, like, when those apps first came out, like, a few black people were, like, made to look like gorillas or something. Yeah, uh-huh. That's uh, That happened in Google Photos. Yes, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, it's a good example. So, for those of you that don't know, Google Photos... If you keep taking pictures of cats, then Google Photos will be like, oh, you must be interested in cats. And so I guess the feature is to just organize it. Similar to what we were talking about, like organizing it by person, 
you can also organize it by topic, I guess. So like if you have a dog, maybe you're interested in all your pictures of your dog. So there's like a dog label. You can just tap to see all those pictures. But yeah, go ahead, John, if you want to tell the story of what happens incorrectly. Yeah, well, so I think it was that somebody had taken a picture of either themselves or one of their friends and the Google algorithm labeled a picture of either that person or their friend as a gorilla. But like, obviously, you'd be super pissed about that, Mm -hmm. not just because like, oh, the algorithm got it wrong, but it's like there's a certain insensitivity, I guess. Yes, right. Um, Offensive categorization. Yeah. So is is yeah. that basically what happened? I'm sure I missed some of the details there. Yeah, no, that's basically what happens. Um, from what I read, it labeled both him and his friends as gorillas. And this happened in 2015. And the person that this happened to, he was a black computer programmer. I'm sure that person recognizes like that any program can have bugs and flaws and stuff. Even even though that he recognized that he was still able to see through the fact that like this is not something that's right that like you need to like stand up and fight against that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of these issues that we're going to talk through, you know, none of them are intentional. I hope not intentional issues in the software itself, um, but just kind of like oversights right. that can lead to disastrous results. Yeah. Elijah Cummings, at a congressional hearing on law enforcement's use of facial recognition software in March 2017, said, If you're black, you're more likely to be subjected to this technology, and the technology is more likely to be wrong. That's a hell of a combination. Uh, And I definitely agree with him on that. Um, Now, that study we were talking about by the FBI did, however, go into explore an algorithm uh, where the performance can be boosted and become more consistent when the subject and the trading data are from the same cohort. So what that means is, like, uh, if you're trying to match a Hispanic female uh, with a model, then that model should be trained to identify Hispanic females. Mm. Whereas these other models that the FBI studied, they looked at everybody equally. You know, they had male and female in the same training data sets. They had black, Hispanic, white in the same training data sets. They had young, middle-aged, old in the same training data sets. And so the FBI study went into like, well, what if we train models against these different population groups and then apply identification against those multiple trained data sets? And that performs um, at a much higher accuracy. So that's why I don't think these systems are going to go anywhere. Like they are basically making them better and better. But early on in their use and potentially still some commercial um, systems out there today do have these biases that they need to overcome. Uh, I've heard recently that because the major tech companies realize there are ethical issues with facial recognition, they've essentially stopped Mm. providing the service, uh, at least to the government, the Mm. U.S. federal government. But other companies are taking their place and, you Mm -hmm. know, those companies are not quite as good. So... Mm -hmm. What have you read about that? Yeah, I think there's always, that's the problem with ethics is there's always someone that's less ethical. Right. (laughs) That's willing to do that type of stuff. Um, The government can definitely play a role in helping address these issues. So for instance, certain contracts where they're buying facial recognition systems, they could say, well, we're only going to buy from vendors that aren't closed source. um, Because that's another issue is these things get developed behind closed doors Mm. And the companies that sell them, you know, view it as proprietary software. Mm -hmm. 
so they don't you know want to release the source code to anybody and so that's one proposed solution is that the government should require like if they're going to buy it to require it be open source or at least there's an ability to have it be reviewed by a committee or something like that to just make sure that these biases are addressed so we talked a little bit about this last time where prisons are operated by for-profit institutions and so mm-hmm. there's an incentive to imprison people, um, which that's really fucked up. Um, but mm-hmm. if, if I yeah, guess definitely. if the software is open source, that likes, that makes that sort of setup less likely. If the software is put forward by a for-profit company, they could like develop software that gets a passable but higher number of false positives. They're pulling in more money knowing that 1% of their result set is going to be wrong. Right. Um, When really what they should be doing is absolutely minimizing that false positive set, which might hurt their bottom line, but, you know, is producing more ethical software. Yeah, definitely. I did read that the FBI only uses it as an investigative tool. Um, They don't themselves use it during the prosecution step. They kind of use it as a way of finding out details to like guide them in the right direction, if that makes sense. But yeah, I'm not sure. I can't speak for all 50 states and their law enforcement agencies. Um, So yeah, just the last thing to touch on for facial recognition systems. Um, Another study, uh, this one conducted by NIST, uh, they did a study in 2011 and found that a facial recognition algorithm developed in East Asia performed better at recognizing East Asian faces, while an algorithm uh, developed out here in the West performed better on Caucasian faces. Um, So this study suggests that whoever makes the software strongly affects how it works. And that might be, again, not an intentional bias, but... Do you think that's more of um, like better training data? Mm, That's a good point. That is probably more likely, yeah, that these algorithms, they probably have a database that they're using and that that database, you know, is more tilted um, to the demographics of the geography. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I guess that's what we need is an international photo database. Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, it's, it's, well, it's not it seems <laughs> similar to what you were saying about how if you train against a all-male database, you're going to get better results when looking for male pictures. And if you train against a all-female database, then you'll get better female results. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Um, so that's it for facial recognition. Um, the next topic we're going to discuss is decision-making. And so this is basically, you know, when you use the computer to build a statistical model, whether that's with AI or machine learning or just standard traditional statistics, that if you're not careful about that analysis, that you will introduce bias. Um, So predictive analysis, we're going to try to look into the future and predict different outcomes. There are many examples of where this could go wrong, but we're going to talk about two. The first one is recidivism. Um, So this is used in the court system by judges to determine how likely it is for an offender to offend again. So a ProPublica investigation a few years ago found that software used to predict recidivism was nearly twice as likely to be inaccurate when assessing African-American inmates versus white inmates. They have this table here. The first line in the table is those who were labeled higher risk but did not actually reoffend. 23.5% of white offenders, it labeled them incorrectly. They were labeled higher risk but didn't reoffend. But for black offenders, uh, it labeled them higher risk 
but they didn't actually reoffend 44.9% of the time. So that's twice as often uh, a black offender was misclassified compared to white offenders as being higher risk when they actually weren't. Mm. And conversely, people that were labeled lower risk but did reoffend, uh, that happens 47.7% of the time for white offenders, but only 28% of the time for black offenders. So in both categories, uh, black people were misclassified compared to white people nearly twice as often. But the problem with this misclassification is that such scores are increasingly being used in sentencing and parole decisions by judges, directly affecting the way the criminal justice system treats individual citizens. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy that judges are, are really using this. So basically, you're, you're saying a judge can look at this data set and be like, well, like our models predict that though it's though it's not said, essentially, because you're black, we think you have a higher rate of recidivism. Yeah, so uh, the ProPublica investigation, when it was published, they found an example of a judge quoting the system itself in his decision. So, you know, the judges will wow. write out the rationale for their decision. And the sentence was, and I'm paraphrasing, but the sentence was something like, because your score in the CMPS system indicates that you are a high risk for recidivism, your sentence will be this. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, judges are supposed to be unbiased, but there are, of course, liberal judges and conservative judges, and maybe liberal judges are use it just as a tool, hopefully. But I could definitely see conservative judges not caring that there's a bias and being like, oh, well, I have, you know, a tool here that I'm not the one, you know, it's the tool that's racist. Like, they don't actually care to understand the systems that they're using, right? So they just blindly use it. One of the questions that I keep hearing come up around this topic is, let's say that you do have a perfectly accurate prediction algorithm Mm -hmm. um, that does not have any bias or anything like that, and like really does perfectly predict what your expected recidivism rate is, then is it still unethical to use that? Mm -hmm. Or Mm -hmm. because it is so so good at doing this, um, and it's truly like unbiased in that case? Mm Um, does that somehow then become justified? Right, yeah. That's a great ethical question. I think the reason why all of these systems are deployed is just trying to tackle like the scale of certain problems. Like, I just know I've heard that the courts are overwhelmed as it is. And so I think they use these tools to just try to help get through cases faster. Whether that's a good justification or not, probably not. But I don't know what other solution there would be, like, other than opening up more (laughs) courts or something. Well, just arresting less people, I would think. Oh, yeah. Well, sure. You know. (laughs) Give them less cases by not arresting everyone. more people into the system. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that is all I had on recidivism. The next predictive analysis decision-making topic would be human resources. Um, So, for instance, you know, your HR system is evaluating candidates and it looks at employees that have worked in that job in the past, then it might introduce a bias, whether it be race or gender. Um, So just to give it a gender example, uh, let's say a man is applying for a nurse position. He might be found less fit for that position if the machine is just making its own decisions, because perhaps looking through the past employees in that position, well, they found 80% of the time it was a female. So it might give a lower score to that male. Yeah. 
But conversely, uh, if a woman were to apply to be a software developer or programmer, she might have the same negative effect. The program might lower her score in that application. Yeah, so this goes back to like normalizing your, your data set to like the population, I guess, like so make it like a per capita analysis. Like you, if you're looking for a good software developer, you don't want to say, oh, how many of my existing software developers fit this criteria? You want to say, like, for each category, how good is the average software developer? Yeah, well, we've also kind of talked about, not related to this episode, but I remember we talked about, like, how do you evaluate software developers? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, and I feel like there's just not a good way or we haven't figured Mm -hmm. out a good way to like actually give developers an evaluation and record that score and see how that score changes over time. Mm. So yeah, I think this is, I just feel like a problem for HR in general. Like you get this person that comes in, they're a good talker and they've hit all the check boxes and they've said all the right things. But ultimately, like you don't really know if they're going to be good at the job. And you just kind of have to roll the dice a little bit. I guess software, like you could ask for code examples, but even then, like, how do you ultimately get to one number that is their score? And then how can you have new applicants come in and get a score for them to just match on that, like, unbiased factor? Yeah. I'm not sure. So that's it for human resources. Um, Now, both human resources and recidivism were trying to look into the future. Like, is this going to be the right decision in the future? Mm. But another situation is just trying to make a decision right now using past data. And so, for example, geospatial analysis, if not done correctly, can also have discriminatory biases. Mm -hmm. For instance, there are systems that law enforcement agencies use to decide where they're going to deploy the police. There's only so many officers that you have to intelligently decide where those officers' beats are going to be. And so law enforcement will use arrest data that they've collected and decide from that arrest data where the officers are going to be. And so there's already going to be a feedback loop, right? Like if officers are through this unfair criminal justice system going into black neighborhoods and that's where they're making the most arrests, well, then that arrest data gets fed back into the model. And then the model says, hey, all your arrest data is happening in these neighborhoods. You should go back to that neighborhood. So if you aren't introducing any type of uh, way of removing that bias, basically the algorithm is just following the police, not the police following the algorithm. Right. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah, geospatial analysis can also be biased. Um, Even apps like Pokemon Go have been shown to redline minority neighborhoods. Basically, they don't include enough minority neighborhoods. So Pokemon Go or, you know, other delivery algorithms They are excluded from participation due to their location. For example, there are fewer Pokestops in minority neighborhoods. So I guess someone has taken a look at the distribution of Pokestops and found that they happen less frequently in minority neighborhoods compared to non-minority neighborhoods. So this is interesting because you don't want to put a bunch of Pokestops in like the middle of the Savannah Desert and like you don't want to put it in the the middle of the Amazon rainforest. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing there is some sort of algorithm that looks at like how often people are playing in the area Mm -hmm. and allocates Pokestops like to those areas. Right. But it's a chicken and egg problem. Like, well, people aren't playing because there's no Pokestops (laughs) there. There's no Pokestops there because people aren't playing. Right, right, right. 
you got to try to buck the trend somehow. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, like I use in DC, we have a bike sharing uh, program. And I lived in a less well-served neighborhood uh, for a few years. And it drove me crazy that there were like never any bike stops anywhere. Mm-hmm. And the bike sharing program put up a map where you could vote on spaces. And of course, like the people that are using the bikes the most are the ones in the more concentrated areas of the city. Mm -hmm. So those parts of the city are getting the most bike stops. But as someone who lives outside of that area, it's very frustrating to not have any bike stations available. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this gets back to, you know, you had mentioned before, like private companies, like they're going to want to put those bikes where they're going to get the most money back from them. Yeah. Maybe that's why, but that's sort of a great segue into like if we were to have a conversation about the role of government i think should be to protect all citizens and help all citizens not just the wealthy ones Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, so we talked about decision making and how that can have biases another example is in translation so for example a st louis tech executive emery sarbot noticed something strange about google translate Emery uh, is Turkish, and so he was kind of experimenting with converting from the Turkish language to English, Uh, and what he found was Google struggled to translate sentences from Turkish to English, where the Turkish sentence used a gender-neutral term. Uh, So for instance, the gender-neutral pronoun in Turkish is O, and if Emery put into Google Translate, O is a nurse... Google Translate would translate it as she is a nurse. Oh, wow. And when he would put in, oh, is a doctor, it would translate it to he is a doctor. And so there's a gender discrimination here where in Turkish, these were meant to be neutral terms, um, but Google Translate forces them into being gender specific terms. Yeah. Like I imagine what's happening there is that they're looking for the analogous word in English and it seems like they have a preference when translating for gender specific terms mm-hmm. in English than they do. Like you would think that the, if it's a gender neutral term in the native language, then they would use the gender neutral they right. when switching over. But it seems like for some reason it overrides that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it says here, Google Translate learns language from an existing corpus of writing and that that writing often includes cultural patterns regarding how men and women are described. And I also know that using they as gender neutral in like the English literary circles was generally not accepted for a very long time. It's only recently been that you're able to use they as the gender neutral word. And I don't, I have no idea why. I think because in the past, they was supposed to refer to like a group of people, right. not like some unidentified person. Um, and you know how sticklers can be. Right. <laughs> but um, yeah. so anyway, I guess I'm saying that because even with that usage in modern times, like if Google Translate was learning not just on modern corpuses of writing, as it says, but also looking at books, you know, from the 60s and 70s, etc., where they wouldn't have used they in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, then yeah, it definitely would have picked up on that gender bias. And so because the model is trained on data that already has biases of its own, the results that it spits out serve only to further replicate and even amplify them. Um, So even translation services can be discriminatory. Um, So yeah, lots of different discrimination or bias that can be introduced in software if uh, you're not careful. So what are some ways that we can try to overcome this bias? 
Um, so we mentioned before how currently the software is, is mostly all proprietary. And so it's developed by private companies who don't want to share the source code. Um, and on top of that, each algorithm is trained, you know, behind closed doors. So we mentioned briefly the NIST study where um, East Asian algorithms are developed and perhaps their database is more tilted towards East Asian photos and Western algorithms might be more tilted to Western photos, um, whereas a more fleshed out database uh, might better serve the problem, but because it's behind closed doors, we'll never know what database they actually used. Um, so the solution to all that is to demand transparency by these companies, um, but to also demand transparency by the government. Um, so we mentioned before how the government could have a regulation for themselves that if they're going to buy this type of software, that they mandate that the vendor be transparent about their algorithm. You know, what is your algorithm doing? What is the code? What is the training data set, et cetera? And I think also being more transparent about how the government uses it to make decisions. Um, you know, like we mentioned that judge, how he quoted the recidivism system in his judgment mm -hmm. and whether it's ethical to even use the system or not is one question. But if you use it, I think you should have to quote it yeah. just to make it transparent, you know, that people know that these systems are being used against them. Right. Yeah, that's interesting because since he quoted it, I'm sure there was some sort of appeal um, given that he said that. But if he hadn't said that, they probably wouldn't have been able to appeal. Yeah, exactly. And even, you know, I just feel like now that I've researched this and I know that these systems are used and used much more in a biased way against black people, like, I'm just wondering what other systems are out there and what other systems have been, you know, used to make decisions about me. Like, I thought you were going to end that by saying, since I know these things are being used, I'm not going to go to any more Taylor Swift concerts. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm on the stalker list. I'm not allowed. So <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> And then the last point, this is quoting a Microsoft researcher named Rich Caruana. Um, he says that omitting variables like gender and race in different algorithms isn't always the solution to countering bias. And in fact, when we were talking about the facial recognition systems, the FBI's study found that the one algorithm that could train itself on those different cohorts, that algorithm performed way better than the algorithms that only looked broadly across all people. Um, so sometimes I think it's often thought that, well, in order for my software to not be biased, I'd have to just not think about those things at all. But in the case of facial recognition, if we're going to continue to use these systems, then they better be fucking accurate, right? Uh, and so but, to make them the most accurate, you have to look at those groups individually. That strikes me as like maybe not a good idea because if you if you train against East Asian population and against a Western American population, and then you feed it in an unlabeled face without any demographics, mm -hmm. it's not going to be any more accurate than if you were to train your algorithm against the combined set of those two. So basically like for it to be more accurate you have to put in i'm looking for uh east asian face oh yeah yeah, yeah sure then it, mm -hmm. yeah like sure then it's going to be more accurate but maybe that's not correct maybe the person using the software is going to put in more often than not i'm looking for a black right male, mm -hmm. you know yeah you would need to have those inputs to get those better outputs but i do wonder like mixed race too like you know, how would the system work for mixed race people? That's a good point. Like people are not white or black. Mm -hmm. People are some various combination of like multiple ethnicities uh, with like certain percentages and from one region of the world and some from another. Right. And mm -hmm. so 
Yeah, like the world is a lot more nuanced than just white and black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So those are different ways in general that people can help overcome these biases, you know, basically demand transparency from these companies and by the government. Um, but what can software developers do? You know, this is a show by software developers for software developers. Um, so as a software developer, you could advocate for change at your job. Um, be more skeptical of data sources that you're using and be more skeptical of the analysis that your company is doing with those data sets to make sure that they're doing it in a way that is non-biased and non-discriminatory. Um, you should ask yourself if those data sets are even accurate. How can you be sure that they're accurate? In uh, the worst case scenario, are there ways that the software you built around those data sets Uh, Are there ways that that could disproportionately impact a specific group of people? Um, And one group of people that I think are underserved by technology are actually disabled. Um, So, you know, we need to build software that's accessible um, to all bodies. Another point is, do you hear from a diverse set of voices? You know, look at your leadership. Would you consider the leadership group at your company a diverse set of voices And if not, how can you change that? If you're one of those leaders, if you're a manager and you have hiring authority, are you hiring diverse voices to work for you as direct reports? And if you're not, why aren't you doing that? Um, So these are different ways software developers can sort of contribute to overcoming these biases by solving them at your workplace. Um, Because technology is not amoral, you know, it has the same biases potentially as the people that build it. So we need to be careful. Yeah. So I just wanted to point out one recent example, Alexis Ohanian. Uh He was one of the founders of Reddit Mm -hmm. um, and he was on the board. So he actually stepped down from the board and requesting that he be replaced by a black person saying, I believe resignation can actually be an act of leadership for people in power right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I know a lot of people criticize that, like, you know, that it was just a big PR move. But, you know, I don't really think that that's true. I think that, you know, Alexis looked at that board and said, you know, we're not diverse enough. We need to make our board more diverse. And so I'm leaving. Yeah. And I'd be very surprised if that benefited him in any way financially. Like, I'm sure he he lost out on a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. So that's pretty much it. But I did want to end with one positive example. We've talked about a lot of negative examples of where these types of algorithms can go wrong. Uh, But I did want to end with a positive example because done correctly, you know, this stuff can actually really help us. So the positive example is the city of Pittsburgh put transparency front and center when implementing a new software program developed by the Allegheny County Department of Human Services. Their software program was used to figure out which children were more susceptible to abuse and neglect. And so we mentioned before about how you can open source uh, the software, or at least make it publicly available through request. And so that's what Allegheny County's Department of Human Services did. This algorithm is publicly available. All the records about how it works are publicly available, and it's done so for researcher scrutiny. Um, So they're really trying to be open about how they're using this software. And as of last December, the algorithm had been found to treat black and white families more consistently than human screeners had before. And so this is an example of the software reducing bias in that department's operations. You know, they had these screeners and 
for whatever reason, the human screeners themselves were biased and they were underserving the families that they're meant to serve all of these families, not certain families better than others. Mm. So the algorithm was working as a computer, an unbiased computer, and making better decisions than the human beings without the computer had been before. Yeah, that's cool. That's good. Yeah. Good example. Well, that's all I have. Uh, Do you have any closing thoughts? I guess my, my closing thought would just be that it seems technology advances at such a faster rate than our laws and judicial system. Yeah. Not not just the US, but any laws or like any bureaucratic structure right. can keep mm-hmm. up with. I guess I'm doubtful that the positive examples will continue to shine mm-hmm. through. I think more likely there will be more negative examples. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like I, I think the march of scientific progress is cannot be hampered. Really. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think this is going to continue. And I think it's important that, you know, since that's the case, we really try to like fight through what's right and to try to make a positive impact. Yeah, definitely. Those are some wise words, John. Hey, thanks. I'll try. <sighs> so much I'm learning the past few weeks. It feels like I'm growing. I'm in my mid thirties and I'm still growing. So I feel good about that. yeah yeah all right well that's it man thanks for hanging in there with me this is a great episode covered a lot of good topics i think yeah definitely this has been really good i think this is a great one yeah me too cool thanks man all right cool see you see you